0: Uh, but turn in your Bibles to uh, the book of John. It is the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. St. John's Gospel. We'll also have it on screen. Some of you like to read in your Bible or on your phone. Hear the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, or grasped it, or comprehended it. You can translate that Greek word all three ways. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, he was not the light himself, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, now we pray for your anointing grace and power, the unction of your Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds, that we might be able to understand what this Word was and is to us and to this world. Convict us and convince us this morning, right now, as we hear Transform our hearts by the hearing of the word, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of your name. And We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've ever tried to carry on a conversation with a toddler, not your own, uh, you often find yourself puzzled. I'm assuming we've all had this experience, You're puzzled trying to carry on a conversation with a toddler. Their speech is, it's undeveloped. And, um, but remarkably, uh, the speech of small children is understood by their parents. A child will mumble, and mom will say, you know, oh, you hurt your finger, you need a band aid, then you want a sippy cup and you want to take a nap. You know, and you know, the, the person standing there goes, what? You know, you got that from, you got all of that from that? Um, my first semester at seminary, I met a, a friend. His name was Jody Van Dyke. He was from South Carolina. And he was, we were, I was asking him about, you know, uh, what things were like. And, and he, was, um, he was working for this service that the seminary uh, put on where people uh, who were hungry and in need. And he said with a Southern Carolinian accent, um, he said, um, uh, I, um, I work for um, a service called Take Them a Meal. And I said, What? Did you just say mamil? I didn't know what he was saying. We went back, for, back and forth for a few minutes. I could not make out what he was saying. He said, Take them a meal. Let's take them a meal. I go, What is mamil? What is mamil? And Maribel said, Jordan, he's saying take them a meal. I go, Is that what you're saying? We went back and forth for a few minutes. And it was funny. We still joke about it today. I could not make it out what he was talking about because of his accent. Well, N.T. Wright tells the story of Bernard Levin, and Levin was one of the great journalists of the last generation. And he described how, when he was a small boy, a great celebrity came to visit his school. And the headmaster, perhaps wanting to impress, called the young Levin to the platform in front of the whole school, and the celebrity asked the little boy what he'd had for breakfast matzo replied Levin. Matzo-bri. matzo is a typical Central European Jewish dish uh, made of fried eggs with matzo wafers, brown sugar, and cinnamon. But the celebrity, ignorant of such cuisine, thought he'd misheard. And he repeated this question, uh, and Levin, who was puzzled and anxious, gave the same answer. He said, what did you have for breakfast? And this little boy Not knowing what to say, except what he knew to say, he repeated it again, Matsubri, and the celebrity glanced at the headmaster and said, what is this word he's saying? What is he saying? The headmaster asked Levin um, once more what he'd had for breakfast, and um, after he gave the final answer, the little boy, he was in tears, went back to his his chair because he thought he'd given the wrong answer, but it was the only answer he knew how to give. Well, a Jewish word spoken to an uncomprehending world, a child's word spoken to uncomprehending adults, a word for food which others were totally unaware of. But, you know, words are not always understood as they're meant to. That's the point. Words are not always understood as they're meant to. They can be hard to understand, incomprehensible at times, but that doesn't take away their meaning or reduce their significance. When John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, he's saying something that is both familiar and new at the same time. And we're so used to that passage that we risk skipping right over the incomprehensibility, the oddness, the almost embarrassing strangeness of the word. In Genesis 1, the climax of creation is the creation of human beings made in God's image. And in John 1, the climax is the arrival or the advent of a human being the Word made flesh. And Hebrews tells us, the first chapter of Hebrews tells us that in times past, God spoke through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son, His final word to humanity. God has spoken to us in these last days through His Son, His final word to humanity. And the very hinge of this whole concept is that, The Word isn't an abstract principle, but it's personified. The Word was in flesh. The Word became human. The Word became one of us. The Word became one of us. There's something about relating to someone who looks like you. I remember the Kevin Costner film. It's a great film, Dances with Wolves. Maybe you've seen it. And um, Costner's character is a Union Army lieutenant who travels to 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 the American frontier out in the West to find a military outpost and finds himself making friends with a group of Lakota Indians. And he practically becomes one of them, and he becomes entrenched in their culture, but he's really not one of them. You know, he's a white man. And he's all alone... Until he's introduced to Stands with a Fist, a white woman who has almost forgotten how to speak English because she's lived with the Lakota so long. But she looks like him, and he looks like her, and the connection and chemistry is instantaneous. They're, he's one of her, you know, they're one of each other. They're one of the same. See, it's, it's one thing to believe in a God you've never seen, but it's... Um, entirely something different. To see the face of God reflected back in someone that looks like you. The Word made flesh. It was not just this abstract idea of God, this disconnected idea of who God was. The Old Testament Jews had a sense of God. They had the law. They had the Scriptures. They had the Word of the prophets. But the Incarnation, when the Word came flesh, took the understanding of who and what God was to a whole nother level. A revelation of the character and the person and integrity of this invisible God reflected back to you and I in the face of another human being that looked like us. The Word made flesh. So when John says this phrase, that the Word has become flesh, He's saying God became one of us, and in Him, this Word made flesh, we see God. God became one of us, and in Him, we see God. But you know, amazingly, not everyone recognizes God in Jesus. Our sermon this morning is the incomprehensible word. Not everyone comprehends who this Word made flesh actually is. Not everyone recognizes God in Jesus, Not everyone comprehends the word made flesh. Verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not grasped it. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Can you imagine that? In the first century, Jesus walking down the streets of Nazareth or Capernaum or the Galilee. And, you know, maybe Jesus' head is somewhere and he doesn't stop to talk to everyone. And you're walking and you see somebody walk by you. You know, a man, you know, I don't know if he had the long hair and beard image, but he walks by. And, you know, good morning. And you have no idea that that's God. That that person that just walked by you is God made flesh. He came to the world. The world didn't recognize him. Though he made the world, the world was unable to comprehend him. The world didn't know who he was. They didn't receive him. We're told in 2 Corinthians 3 that the one who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But, But the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The work of Satan is to prevent people from seeing in Jesus God. That's the work of Satan in this world, to blind the hearts of people so that when they see Jesus, they just see another so-called prophet. They don't see God. And John is really saying here in these verses two things simultaneously. First, that the incarnation of the eternal Word was the event for which creation had been waiting all along. That's why John says, in the beginning was the Word. He's copying the language from Genesis. He's pointing to the fact that all of creation served this purpose to reveal God's very nature and character when the Word was made flesh. And the second thing he's saying was that the world was quite unprepared for this event. That all of creation, all of human history, served the purpose of of revealing the nature of God as the Word became flesh, but we weren't ready for it. We just, we weren't ready. Human beings weren't ready for it. N.T. Wright commenting, wrapping back around from the story of Bernard Levin again, says, Jew and Gentile alike, upon hearing of this strange word, cast anxious glances at one another, like the celebrity and the headmaster hearing a little boy telling the truth about what he'd had for breakfast in a language they didn't understand. You know, during this time of year... The world pretends to know Jesus. The world knows that Jesus was the Son of Mary, purported to be the Son of God and Savior, but they just don't care because they don't accept his pattern of doing things. And so when it says that the world didn't comprehend, it didn't mean that they didn't understand Jesus' claims. They understood, and our world today understands what Jesus is saying, but they're unable to grasp it and comprehend it because Jesus represents a way of living, a way of being, a way of doing things that is completely foreign to this world. He represents a humility and a servanthood, and the world despises that. He's the opposite of big, fast, and famous. He's the antithesis of self-promotion and competition. He's all that's contrary to this world's way of doing things. It's forked tongue promises and power-hungry betrayal that seeks personal promotion over faithfulness and servanthood and self-sacrifice and love for one another. That's what Jesus stands for. And when they see that, they may pay lip service to it, but they really don't want that. They reject it. They don't like it. And that's what it means when it says that he was in the world... But the world didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize his way of doing things. And in reality, it is completely opposite of the way the world does things. It's hard to function and live in this world and be successful and powerful and strong and safe copying Jesus. It's hard for us. I'd like to act like as Christians filled with God's spirit, you know, we've, it's, we, we've, we've got a handle on it but we don't, it's hard for us too the challenge of Jesus is wrestling with this very same thing Jesus and what he stands for and everything he is seems to be just the opposite and we like to pretend that only the world doesn't comprehend Jesus but sometimes neither do we sometimes we pretend to know Jesus when we really don't we love power too and strength, and success, and victory. But the Son of God in a manger, the weakness, the poverty, the vulnerability, the suffering, we often don't know what practical implication that has with our lives. Because in our lives, to move in this world, we have to play by the world's rules. And it seems that Jesus played by a completely different set of rules of what he was and who he was and the things that he valued, which are ultimately the things that God values. If you want to know what God thinks, the way God is, we look at Jesus. That's ultimately what these scenes of Christmas are all about. The tinsel and the parades and the decorations, they're beautiful, and those things are fine, but that's ultimately not what we're meant to see. What we're meant to see is a scene in which the Word became flesh God became a human being and laid there in a manger helpless and weak and vulnerable. The challenge of Jesus is embracing weakness not for its own sake, but because in our weakness, God's very nature and power and character is revealed as God is strong for us. When we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, when we allow ourselves to kind of soak in our weakness, which none of us enjoy, often it's thrust upon us, right, by some trial, some circumstance we can't control, and we find ourselves not living the life we want to live because we're somehow suffering some kind of setback, crippled by circumstances, and we find ourselves weak, that's the very time that God's strength is meant to be made perfected in us. God's strength, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. His strength is not made perfect in our strength. Which is to say that when we're strong, when we have our lives together, God's just kind of sitting back on the sidelines. Biding his time, waiting. I don't know that any of us truly come to know the very character and essence of, Of God when things are good. I like things being good. I'm gonna be the first to confess. I like good times. I like happy times. I like times of abundance. I don't like times of want and need and suffering and weakness. Who does? But it is in those times of vulnerability, of suffering, of weakness, of powerlessness that we encounter the very face of God. We come to know him in a special way. In our vulnerability, God's power is revealed. In the vulnerability of the word made flesh in the manger, the power of God was there. It wasn't that the child could have moved his finger, you know, and, you know, destroyed armies. That wasn't the point It was that the power of God was revealed, the majesty of God is revealed by becoming weak. For our sakes. So that we could see in another human being with limitations just like us, the very reflection of the invisible God. And that's exactly what the Bible says. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the very radiance of his glory and power. And just so you know, Jesus didn't have all power. Jesus walked 70 miles. He didn't float. He didn't snap his finger and have a 4 course meal in front of him when he was hungry. He didn't have four-star hotel accommodations when he was tired. He even said, you know, foxes have dens, but the Son of Man, what? No place to rest his head. What? God came into the flesh and limited himself to all of the limitations of humanity he was hungry, he was tired. You know, people think when Jesus was in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, when it was, the storm was raging and the apostles were freaking out, that it was like some grand plant. No, Jesus was exhausted. He had preached the whole day before. He was wiped out. He was knocked out. They had to wake him up. You know, Jesus, what? What's going on here? Jesus became a human being, suffered and experienced the limitations and vulnerability. That's why he needed the power of the Spirit like we need the power of the Spirit to be empowered and strengthened in our weakness, and to look into the person of Christ and see a reflection of our own humanity and recognize that God desires and can be and will be glorified in us when we embrace that weakness so that God's strength can be made manifest. The challenge of Jesus is vulnerability and weakness and understanding that God's very power and essence And majesty is revealed in our suffering because suffering makes us obedient. Hebrews 5 and 8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience to the things that he suffered. Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience. Jesus had to learn obedience. And he learned it in the things he suffered. So if you're suffering this morning, if you're vulnerable this morning if you find yourself areas of your life that are beyond your control, that frustrate you, that make you feel that your life is out of control, you're in good company. Learning obedience. Learn obedience through your suffering, through the things you're going through, through the things you're wrestling with. And this is the very thing that makes it hard to proclaim Jesus to the world, this concept, this idea, this ethic of weakness, that it's not in the power structures, in the wealth, in the strength of the world. Now, let me just make a quick aside. We have to, we have to do business with the world, right? So we have to participate on some level with those rules, right? You know, and we get that. You go, into, uh, you go to work, you have to, you've got to play by their rules often. And and that makes it hard, though, for us when we're trying to learn Christ and then proclaim Christ back to a world who doesn't enjoy life out of control. Our whole lives are centered around around controlling our lives, controlling our existence. But it's hard to proclaim this Jesus who was vulnerable, this baby in a manger, the Word became flesh because of the sinful and idolatrous hearts that get in the way, and I'm talking about ours also. The love of money gets in the way, the desire to have autonomy and freedom and to do whatever we want, that gets in the way. And the false notion that there is hardly anything that we need to attend to in order to maintain our life with God, that gets in the way. I'll I'll repeat that. This false notion that there is hardly anything that we need to attend to to maintain our life with God. You know, you can have God without anything God prescribes. That's where the world is. They want their cake and eat it too, right? They want to know God without actually doing anything that God says. And that's, that's us too. We want to have God, but we don't actually want to take his prescription for living and walking and learning and loving and all of those different things. We want to know God, but we don't really want to have to do anything he says or he prescribes to actually know him. A few weeks ago, or I don't know, a week ago maybe, I, don't, I can't remember it, I made that statement, you know, I was talking about the popular statement, you know, that people want a relationship without, you know, religion. You know, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. And kind of the harm, the inadvertent harm that's brought on our culture because people have understood that to mean, um, you know, that I don't, you can have God without taking anything he's prescribed the mystery of Christmas, I mentioned a moment ago, is not the presents, the wallpaper, the lights, the wrapping paper. Not the wallpaper. Maribel would like wallpaper, Christmas wallpaper. But it's not about the trees, the parades, or the even the cheer, even though those are nice things. Those things are not ultimately what we're meant to see. We're meant to see, as I mentioned a moment ago, the scenes. And not just the manger scene, but the call of the first disciples, the changing of the water into wine, the confrontation with Pilate, the crucifixion, the resurrection. And when we see those scenes, think to ourselves, this is what it looks like when the Word becomes flesh. And as we look at this man of flesh, learn to see God. When we look at the Word made flesh. Now here's the good news. Some will understand. Some will see, some will comprehend and recognize God when they see the manger. And there's this reward in verse 12 of the same passage. Anyone who does receive him, who believes in his name, he gives the right to become the children of God. It says Jesus came into the world, the world didn't comprehend or receive or recognize him. But for those who do, for those who do, he gives them the right to become the children of God. Anyone, then and now, you don't even have to be born into a particular family or a particular part of the world. Anyone. God wants people from everywhere to be born into his family, born anew, born again. But that only comes through Jesus, the Word, who reveals the glory of the unseen God. And so I ask you this morning, have you been born again? Have you repented of your sins and placed your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation? If you haven't, today is the day of salvation. And if you have, that's good news Share that good news as a gift this Christmas. We often think, how can we communicate the spirit of Christmas every year? Well, that's part of the way, is proclaiming and sharing the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord. Give someone that gift. It's a gift that will literally change their lives for eternity by helping them recognize the word made flesh. Let's pray.